Hi, Monica Lopez here. Before we get started, I'd like to ask you to consider supporting independent media and making contact by becoming a donor. We know we're not the only podcast you listen to, but we certainly do hope we're among the group that's worth giving to. So visit our website at radioproject.org. And now, here's the show. You're listening to Making Contact. I'm Anita Johnson, and up next on Making Contact. A lot of times we have to come out of America to heal, to be places where we're not always the victims, we're not always in protection mode. And and being in Africa right now, whether it's temporary or long term, I feel myself healing. I'm starting to see Black people who are loving unity. Rashad McCurry is part of a growing group, Black American expatriates, who say they have experienced some form of anxiety, anger, and depression due to systemic racism, police brutality, and economic inequalities in the U.S., and chose to pursue a better quality of life abroad. You know, in America, I refuse to have police friends no matter what the ethnicity is. And, um, and it comes from the system. I'm starting to see that people can have altercations and it, and it doesn't have to turn into violence. That law enforcement isn't a villain, you know? There's so many things that I'm starting to see in a different light that's actually making me more of a whole person. Showing me what reality is and actually showing how at sometimes diabolical systematic injustice is in America because it has us thinking all out of whack. There aren't official stats to track this type of migration, but stories like Rashad's demonstrate that the idea of leaving the U.S. has gained more traction among black Americans within recent years. It's clear that more black people are beginning to rethink their relationship with America. It's like now I'm on the outside looking at, like what they say about a bad relationship, you're, you're in a bad relationship, but you don't know it because it's all you know. In order to better understand the concept of leaving the U.S. for a life not stricken by systemic racism, I talked to Tiffany Drayton, author of the new book, Black American Refugee, Escaping the Narcissism of the American Dream, about her family's immigration to America and the racism that facilitated her move back to Trinidad and Tobago in 2013. Having escaped a toxic romantic relationship with a narcissist, Drayton recognizes the same unhealthy behaviors in her relationship with America. America, of course, being the narcissist and Black Americans as the abused partner in the relationship. The imperfect and protracted love story. Tiffany shares her perspective on the existing state of the U.S. and whether the American dream is attainable for black Americans. We are looking at the current predicament of the United States of America, whether it be the astounding inflation, whether it be being on the brink of all types of calamity with war um, in Europe. It's very, it's a frightening moment for anyone to think that this concept of the American dream is attainable. You know, when people are buried in student loan debt, especially black women, um, the list of issues is just so, you know, unending. And it seems as if at this moment, so many things are unraveling. So the question of the American dream being tenable or attainable to all Americans is really starting to come into sharp focus. And a lot of people are saying, uh, how can I afford a house? If the the price of housing is absolutely absurd, you know, um, how can I afford a life at all? And that's something that all Americans are grappling with. And then when you add to that 
the layer of systemic racism and you understand things like wealth disparities, then you really get to understand just how damning it is for black people in the United States of America and our ability to have this uh, social mobility and economic mobility that even whites more frequently can grasp. Um, you know, in the larger context, it's hard for everyone at this point, but for black America, it is especially difficult. Something that really resonated for me while reading the book was the love bombing aspect of America and its relation to black people and or immigrants. Um, please explore the idea with our listeners because it's really an excellent way to describe this, you know, same or similar toxic relationship that many black people have with the United States. Yes, well, um, at the time that I started kind of working out my book, I also simultaneously was working out this kind of really toxic relationship that I was in um, with you know, a, a very narcissistic, abusive relationship. And in exposing myself to healing from and ultimately leaving that relationship, I really recognized that abuse has cycles. And that abuse cycle um, kind of became a lens through which I looked at everything. And all of a sudden, you know, doing all of this work that I had been doing for all this year about years about racism, I was like, wait a minute, this is exactly how I felt in the United States of America for my entire life. And so this idea of love bombing, which is that first part of the abuse cycle, it's when the abuser meets the victim and they sell all of these tales and these narratives about, you know, you're made for me, you're perfect for me, we're going to have the perfect relationship, everything is so amazing. Um, that's that initial phase of the relationship. And when you think about the United States of America and how it sells all of the narratives around itself, like, we're number one, we're the best, we're this, we're that, you know, and, and immigrants come here and they can build themselves up and you can pull yourselves up by the bootstraps. Anybody can be rich. Anybody can be a millionaire, right? All of these narratives kind of makes us really uh, committed to and invested in um, that relationship. And I really wanted people to understand that that is a tool of abusers and it has a name and it's called love bombing. You know, I really like the idea of love bombing. You know, for me, it's this constant love narrative uh, that we have with America, the love and hate relationship. We understand how toxic it is, yet we constantly are working towards, you know, voting America into its promise or protesting America into some level of consciousness, even to the point where we till the land with the expectation that something fruitful will grow eventually and, and the fact of the fact of the matter is that it should yet we also understand the nature of America are you suggesting that more black Americans need to become clear with the reality that currently exists regarding quote-unquote the toxic relationship and then also figure out an exit strategy much in the same way you did with the self-imposed exile Yes, you know, I think that once one becomes aware of the damning nature of narcissistic abuse, primarily the fact that these abusers seldom change. Like, it's not 
uh, abusers like the power, they like the control and the mechanisms by which they exert that power and control are sometimes so clandestine. It's like you wouldn't even necessarily know it's happening to you. So you may think things are changing, right? And that's part of, once again, the cycle of abuse. Like you think, oh, things are getting better. Oh, Obama was elected. So everything is going to be great. And then all of a sudden you get this backlash and there's white supremacist groups sprouting up everywhere, right? So to really answer your question about becoming aware, like once you are aware that of the nature of an abuser and what it means to be victimized, you really can't turn your back on that anymore. You're like, no, I'm not gonna let anybody treat me like that. No, I know my worth, I know my value. And that's where we as individuals, as a collective, reclaim our power. And in doing so, the exit strategy from a relationship like that is our collective power because leaving is an option right you can go to another country you can have your nice online job and make some us dollars and continue to live out a, a beautiful life around all people of color i can't tell you that's not a bad thing for me it's a fantastic thing for me but when we understand like the scope of white supremacy i really urge people to know and to really reflect on the fact that it's going to take more than that for us as a diaspora for black people for african people all around the world to truly reclaim their dignity in this white supremacist system that we must eradicate ultimately when we speak of white supremacy uh and the system itself the nature of how it exists i say it's long-reaching uh, because many times we only will focus on what's happening in the united states uh, and i say this as black americans but when we think about the nature of it and its function, it's impacting the world, right? And I have an uncle, he's Nigerian. One thing that he says is that Nigeria exists in the state that it does because its biggest resource, its people, have been outsourced. Therefore, the intellectual promise is limited. Do you also see white supremacy destabilizing the promise of other African countries based on its ability to trick us into staying in this toxic relationship. Because we're just focusing in one particular area, but that's also connected to what you're saying around, we need to eradicate it. We need to eliminate it based on the tentacles of racism. Talk a bit about that. Yes, you know, the, that goes to the idea of brain drain. And pretty much brain drain is when you have a country and everyone leaves that country that's educated because they believe that they can... Um, have more resources or have more access to resources in another country. And that's what America has been doing historically for a very long time. You know, you take the best and you take the brightest and they pretty much come here hoping, you know, to make good on the promise of a better life. And as a result, all over the world, people, societies are hurting even in a place like Trinidad and Tobago, you could have better governing structures. You could have um, stronger communities, etc. if there was not as much brain drain. And the same could be said for any African country, for any Asian country where it's losing its brightest and its best to the promise of, you know, European and, 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 and or, or Western in general um, self-betterment or that promise, that, that false promise. So it's like, I do envision this kind of reverse pattern where, and you know, I don't even just see it with black folks. I'm actually starting to even hear it from a lot of European people who are in America where they're like, 
you know, here isn't really that much better. Like, economically, you have to be pretty much a millionaire by this point to live on the East Coast and afford to buy a house. Like, I, I mean, to get a house in the ghetto, you need $300,000 right now. That's what a, a two-bedroom house is going for in Greenville, Jersey City, where my mom was living in the hood. And it's like, what level of absurdity is this? Like, how can anyone, and especially if you're coming to the country with not, you know, that many resources, the dream of that upward mobility may have ended, you know, back in the 80s, back in the 70s, when it could have been realized to at least some extent, you know, but for us younger folks and for this new generation, the trade-off, it just isn't worth it. Because yeah, you come, you lose your whole culture, you lose all your friends, all your family, more than likely, or you have to wait until they slowly trickle their way over here. And for what? You're still broke. So a lot of people are just not willing to make that sacrifice anymore. And some people who have been making that sacrifice for years are starting to question, well, is it really worth it? And are the returns going to be as great as I imagined they were? And for some, the answer is going to be, no, it's not. And they're going to take their butts back home. But beyond just that concept of um, people leaving America, I think it's really essential that we also focus on black folks building like a globalized uh, like we have to be committed to a global idea of like a diaspora building because in doing so we can strengthen our communities and our countries and work from there because without that it's going to be a pain because transition is not easy and what we're going through right now as like a global village is a real moment of reckoning that is going to require a serious amount of resources both intellectual and both actually tangible like material and also like a commitment to a new way of viewing the world and where we should live and who we should live with and how we should be building our communities, where we should live, etc. How do we make it sustainable? And I ask in the sense that, you know, many times we may visit these various places, uh, say going back to Africa in particular, in my case, it would be Nigeria, right? My experience might be different than most because I have family there. But the thing for me that is always the ongoing narrative is that there's particular comforts that I'm accustomed to here in the United States. Uh, going to Nigeria, my dietary needs or habits that I'm accustomed to here in the States won't be met there. May sound selfish, but the reality is that many of us have become accustomed or spoiled uh, in regards to our access to things here in the U.S. Um, but there's been this conversation, this talk amongst black expats about investing in neighborhoods that they're moving to or escaping to, uh, creating a business. So when other black Americans or other black expats visit, it might be more familiar to them. We're talking about dining experiences. We're talking about, you know, their shopping experiences and so on. But yet then there's the conversation of not existing as colonizers either and oppressing the people that exist in that particular community. Maybe if you can talk a bit about this conversation that's been happening. Yeah, you know, I really want to contextualize it too to, you know, the year 2022 when the idea of sustainability should pretty much be at the forefront of everyone's thinking and not just with regards to black folks, but with regards to, I would say, just about everything. You know, there's a reason why we're seeing uh, massive inflation right now. There's a reason why we're seeing the deterioration of so many systems. It's because they weren't sustainable. It's because our global supply chains are, were not sustainable. It's because the democratic processes, let's put quotes on that, were not sustainable. So ultimately, we are at um, like this crossroads moment or this huge reckoning 
with the insustainability of this era of um, capitalism and mass production and every the way that we looked at the world, the systems that we erected to kind of the foundations of our society were so unsustainable. So at this point, we have the it, it's so necessary for people with the resources to be thinking about how they're going to impact their communities in ways that just inherently make them more sustainable. And that's where you're seeing all of these amazing ideas crop up about community farming. And that's where you're seeing big push for um, cleaner, renewable energy and actually making it so that um, African nations and nations in the Caribbean actually have renewables. Because ultimately, if we are bringing the future to other countries through our A ideologies, through our resources, our connections to resources, then we're not just colonizing, we're investing. And I think it's essential that we're thinking about the future and what we want the future to look like. And for me, that is something that I'm committed to trying to build, even in a place like Trinidad and Tobago, or for, I would say, not just even, but especially in a place like Trinidad and Tobago, because I love my people, so what I gotta do? But I know that there is so much work to be done and not just from a standpoint of preservation but to actually preserve our culture our way of life and so i think that that's like the real beauty of this moment it's so disruptive it's so frightening we have no idea what's going to come next but once we know what the issues are at least we're working on building something different and addressing them You're listening to Escaping the Narcissism of the American Dream with author Tiffany Drayton on Making Contact. To stay up to date with our shows and get more information about the person profiled in this week's episode, visit us at radioproject.org. Now back to the show. Tiffany, at the beginning of the book, you wrote, quote, I write this from exile, end quote. Uh, Exile is a state of being barred from one's native country for political or punitive reasons. When you said exile, when I read that, the first thing that I thought um, was, say, John Bertrand Aristide, um, the former Haitian president, Lavalas leader, who was forced to flee his homeland. You weren't exiled in the same way as Aristide. So my question would be, why would you describe it as such? And then two, what was the intended purpose for the reader? Because you mentioned very clearly exile as well as refugee, hence the title Black American Refugee. What was the intended purpose in that? What was the intended purpose and point of that? You know, it's... Ooh. The concept of being in exile is so powerful in that it automatically lends itself to the idea of an act being very political. And the reason why black people speaking very clearly about oppression, about systemic racism, black people moving people away from these systems of oppression and and, and challenging those systems. If anyone knows history, they know that's an inherently dangerous act. It's just not something you do and you sit around and you think you're safe. Um, for me, as a black woman, the, the, 
the list of dangers, the host of dangers that are presented to me just in my personhood and just by demanding acknowledgement of my personhood forces me to have to be realistic about the dangers of just being honest. And it's very sad, but being black, being educated, being a woman is one of the most political things you can do. Educating people, it's one of the most political things you can do, especially as you see climates begin to shift and change. And everyone is surprised at the outcome of Roe v. Wade. But I've been afraid just to exist in America for pretty much as long as I could remember. So the idea of exile and refugee, these two words, and they really capture the fear that I feel <laughs> because I know what I do is dangerous. And I know that participation in America and living in America and having my belief systems, you know, they just don't really go together. I'll put it that way. It's just a matter of time before someone doesn't like it and takes note. And the louder you are, the larger your platform grows, the more you organize folks, the more dangerous it becomes. So ultimately, I aspire to not having to engage with a system that is a threat to my very existence. Talk a bit about this targeted experience you've had regarding the United States. Uh, and also, I'm thinking like it's all encompassing of the mental health part as well, because I know so many black women, black professional women that suffer from depression or some level of mental illness. Can you speak directly to that and how it relates to this experience of being targeted? A return to America for me always means a sinking back into a reality that makes me sick to my stomach and makes me depressed and makes it difficult. It's like everything just gets cloudy. <laughs> it's like everything just gets cloudy and dark and sad. And it's like a fight, a constant fight. You know, I say it's like sprinting a marathon. That's what my American life is like. It's like sprinting a marathon. And the more I leave and return, the clearer, the more clarity I have in just how much anguish that return is. And a big part of the reason why I'm like, oh man, I don't know if I can if I can survive this is on the mental health side because it's like you're having all of these detrimental experiences and then I mean who do you really turn to to talk about it you're you're so isolated and that brings back to the idea of being in this abusive relationship right the one thing an abuser always wants to do is isolate their victim and they don't want anyone to believe their victim they want to control the narrative and we don't understand we are living in a constant state of that so when we say we are being oppressed when we say you know, we have to have things to point to to prove it to the society. And you'll say, look, listen, black women are being oppressed. Look at look at the infant mortality rate of black women and look at the maternal mortality rate of black women. And it'll be like, yeah, well, that's because they eat too much fried chicken. You know, there's always an excuse for 
the trauma that we are forced to endure and for the absolute dehumanization of us and, and, and our families. So uh, to that end, it's a big part of it is that every time I come here, I'm so alone and so in the fight. Every time I'm in America, I just don't want to have to see if there's a point at which I, I, I wouldn't even survive it. <laughs> like, I, 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 I may not. Who knows? So I don't judge folks for getting to a point where they're just exhausted, where they don't know what to do anymore. The, what I will say, though, back to that word community, back to that word sustainability, back to the idea of healing and self-healing and recognizing abuse. Once you see it for what it is, you start to rebuild that community. You reconnect with black people and black women. You empower one another. You find ways to share resources. And all of a sudden, things get a little bit brighter again. And that's what we have to do. And that's, that's why I really, really wanted people to understand the cycle of abuse. So we understand, no, it's not us. It's them. Well, with that understanding that it's them and not us, right? What do you say to someone listening to this conversation that might be thinking, hey, Tiffany, capitalism patriarchy, and some forms of racism exist in Trinidad-Tobago, that leaving the U.S. won't make you immune to racism or patriarchy. And I say this in particular as you frame it as a black woman and that things are very difficult. And someone might be listening to me like, okay, what are you escaping when these ills or isms still exist in other environments? What's your response to that? Yeah, you know, I always, I would frequency speak about the impact of the white gaze and just having to be in white dominated environments. And I would say that's what makes, you know, being a minority in the United States of America so specifically hard to bear because you have to be typically, if you're working in corporate America, surrounded by a bunch of white people all day, all night, um, having to confine yourself to whatever their respectability politics demand. And it's like, that takes a toll and just removing yourself from that alone for some people it's a matter of finding like a, a black workplace for some people like me it's a matter of going to another country where other people are black so your neighbors look like you so your kids can play in the park with other black kids and people are not going to give them a stink face you know because it's not a, a white neighborhood or a white park right um so that's just on that's just like the most important part for me is just being able to escape that white dominance and white gaze in daily life. Like it, it is so refreshing and exciting and reinvigorating to see a country full of black and brown people and nobody is there dictating how they have to wear their hair or how they have to like they're just a lot of people just have their natural hair and it's been like that a lot of women just you know are just black and it's just like oh my god is this real and it's really sad but i realized just not being in white space and in that constant white dominance has been truly like transformative for me but the last thing I want to say on that subject is that my book is more than just a call for people to leave the United States of America. You know, I told my story to ultimately educate people to what the system of racism is, how it impacts the individual, how it impacts families, like my own family, how it impacted my own family. And it is ultimately a call 
for reparations, which I call reconciliatory justice, right? Because if America indeed cares to reconcile its relationship with black people, with native people, with other people of color, then it must be held accountable for and make amends to these communities that they have destroyed and negatively impacted for centuries. And so I use my story and also the story of my escape to demonstrate what there is to escape from. And in doing so, I'm just really hoping to in in inspire a bunch of like activism around getting us what we deserve to help us build these communities we're talking about and help us lean towards that sustainable future we're all imagining and help us have renewables and garden spaces in countries all over the world where black folks live. So that's really what my fight is and what my message is. You've been listening to Escaping the Narcissism of the American Dream with author Tiffany Drayton on Making Contact. If you've enjoyed this episode, please write and review us twice on Apple Podcasts, and then please share with your friends and family via Facebook and on Instagram. We're Making Contact Project, and on Twitter, we're Making Underscore Contact. To learn more about us and access other episodes for free, you can always visit us at radioproject.org. The Making Contact team includes Jessica Partnow, Salima Himarani, Sabine Blazin, and I've been your host this week, Anita Johnson. Thank you so much for listening to Making Contact. Contact.